midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Can you remember 2003? That was 18 years ago. People born that year can buy cigarettes now. That is crazy. What a great way to open up the show. (laughs) In 2003, Dan Brown released The Da Vinci Code, which is 10th on the list for best-selling novel of all time. Now, that's based on a website that I was looking at, so hopefully that's roughly true. Anyway, I remember when this book, The Da Vinci Code, came out, and a few, few years later, the movie. It was wildly popular, and growing up in a Christian home and Christian school, it was sort of frowned upon to read The Da Vinci Code because of some of the controversial things that it said about Jesus. In one critical scene in the movie, there, there's you know two main characters, and they meet an expert on the Holy Grail, and his name is Sir Lee Teabing, all right, Teabing. Uh, He is telling Sophie, so one of the main characters, he's kind of walking her through key moments in church history with tons of errors, by the way. So, And he mentions the Council of Nicaea. He claims it was this council 300 years after Jesus' death where church leaders voted on which books would be in the Bible, and they even voted on the immortality of Jesus. So here's a quote from the movie. Teabing says to Sophie regarding the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, as a great and powerful man, but a man nevertheless, a mortal man. So there's a quote that's going to kind of kick us off today. Did Jesus claim to be God and did did the early Christians believe that Jesus was God? Now, before we really get going, I have a little Bears Biscuits for you. This is a little treat that I like to share with my listeners. And today it is Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. And Libby is an app. And it is the, basically, if you have a library card, you can put your information into the app and then it will allow you to access digital books and also audio books right through your phone. So you never even have to go to the library. You just, you can, you search and and uh, download audio books and regular books. And it'll, it'll sync to your Kindle if you have a Kindle as well. So it's a really great app, and it's of course, it's through the library, so all these books are free. It was through this Libby app that I listened to the Da Vinci Code audiobook um, and, and also the, the whole series. So Dan Brown is a really talented author. I, I really enjoyed his books. He, he writes very uh, fast-paced, you know, really intense, kind of keeps you, keeps you into the story type of books. And so uh, there's, there's the Da Vinci Code. There's another one that's has a lot of uh, Catholic sort of roots called Angels and Demons, and then the and then one called The Lost Symbol, which is I think becoming a movie here pretty soon, and that's got kind of a national treasure feel to it. A lot of symbols in in um, the the foundation of America. So it, it was it was interesting. I enjoyed it, and uh, so check them out, Libby. All right, so here's the basic outline. These are all questions I've had to ask myself, you know, at some point in the past. Did the early church, that is, you know, before the Council of Nicaea, believe Jesus was God? This is going to be a pretty simple one to answer, but, you know, the things like the Da Vinci Code and just different things you hear, you know, I've I've had to at least investigate that for myself. The second one, did Jesus himself claim to be God? And then the third, in what sense is Jesus God? 
So that's what we'll be talking about today. Now, we the Da Vinci Code is a, a huge topic, actually, because of all the different controversial things that it that says about Jesus and Christianity, all that stuff. And so we'll uh, that'll come up in in future episodes. In fact, in maybe the next few months, I'll uh, I'll do it like a little series on how we got our Bible and why certain books are included in the Bible and why others are not. And uh, there's a lot of that mentioned in, in the Da Vinci Code as well. So we'll cover that in later episodes. Now, this is getting ex- this is exciting, at least for me. We are approaching 500 downloads. In fact, we should hit it. You know, when, once this episode releases, we should hit 500 downloads for this show. And so, it, it, just first off, thank you for listening and tuning in each week. And I get you know emails and little messages uh, from people uh, saying that they're enjoying it. So that means a lot to me. That is very encouraging, and what keeps me studying and and wanting to put out the next week's episode. Uh, but because we're reaching 500, I wanted to do like a little giveaway. And so here's the way you qualify to get your name in the hat for the giveaway. You can share the show on social media, Facebook and Instagram, basically, um, and tag me. So on Facebook, I'm Barrett Martin. On Instagram, I'm at the real Bear Martin. So tag me when you share the the show. You know, just say, hey, I like Bear Christianity, check it out, that sort of thing. Maybe take a screenshot of you, you know, listening to it or uh, however you want to do that. So share the show and tag me, and then that will notify me, and I'll put you on the list. If you don't have social media or you don't want to do that, that's fine. Email me a question for A Bear in the Woods. Now, A Bear in the Woods, if you haven't listened to the show, we're about to do one. This is just sort of a light question, not really Bible-related, but just on simple stuff that we deal with in life. And so I get to share my opinions, and sometimes it gives me an outlet just to gripe and complain about the way the world is sometimes, all right? So send me a question for A Bear in the Woods, and I'll also put your name in the hat for the drawing, and you can email me at bearchristianity at gmail.com. Now, the winner will get any resource that I have mentioned so far on the show. So this is basically going to be books. I did mention The Case for Christ, which is a book, but also a movie. And so, um, you know, basically I'll I'll put together a list of the resources I've mentioned so far, and the winner, I'll get in touch with you, and you just choose one of those, and I'll, I'll get it sent to you. So that'll be fun. All right, here we go. So A Bear in the Woods. This is a listener, we'll say listener-inspired question. I was talking with a listener, and this sort of came up, and I said, oh, man, that would be a great one for A Bear in the Woods. So here it is. Bear, I have young kids, and sometimes they eat well, but other times when we buy them food, they barely touch it. Any suggestions? Whew, this is a this is a big topic for me because, man, I hate wasting money. It drives me insane. I mean, I'm, I'm okay spending money. Um, I'm, I, I am fairly stingy. I, I'm the type of person who will like not make a purchase just right then. It's very rare that I will just buy something right away. I, I sort of sit and think about it and make sure this is something that I want because I hate the thought of buying something and not using it. Okay. Well, with food and young kids, you're, it's, you're just, this is a terrible situation for me. So you, here's, the, here's the deal. You, you all know this. You go to like a moderately nice restaurant. And what I mean by that is that the kids meal, it's still like over $10 for a kids meal, but it's like a grilled cheese or like, like chicken nuggets, okay? But it's over $10. And usually it comes with some fancy cup thing that the kids just have to have. 
and you know with with the uh, that you take home and then you never use it again or the top doesn't really stay on very good so the kids spill their drinks all over the house but because they have to use this cup instead of the nice ones that you buy them anyway so that that's the type of uh, meal that we're talking about purchasing here so this this causes a lot of problems so here's how we have have settled the issue and I hope it works for you. We have three kids. So if you don't have three or more kids, this this sort of theory may not work for you. But here's how we work it for our family. Our oldest child, with our oldest child, you know, they have to be successful in life, right? I mean, like they are your firstborn. You are, um, they just they just have to be the perfect child. So we typically will buy our oldest child a meal. Um, Because we want them to eat, we want them to be healthy, and usually if they don't eat it, we are on their case big time. You know, eat your food or you will sit in darkness for the next month, right? I mean, we so we are very tough on them, Uh, but we usually will buy them a meal. Now, the middle child, we typically do not buy anything for them. If the oldest child decides not to eat, uh, then we then they can get their food uh, and usually they're wearing hand-me-down clothes anyway so they're sort of used to it so typically for the middle one we don't we don't buy anything for our youngest child we typically will buy two meals just in case uh, she changes her mind halfway through so usually we'll get the chicken nuggets and the grilled cheese meal and because we want her to have options um, and typically, if she eats just one bite, we are like just praising her. She's the greatest child uh, to ever walk the earth. So that's kind of how we handle it. I know we're still buying three meals for three kids, but it just it just works out better in our minds. We feel like we have uh, we've purposed those meals better. And, and when I say our, I mean mine because I'm not uh, not reflecting my wife's views at all here. So hopefully that that's encouraging to you and that will help you you know, think more about how you buy meals for your kids. Also, just a little bit of encouragement. This has helped me. Our pediatrician, when when our um, when we only had one child and we were worried that she wasn't eating enough and that sort of thing as a baby, he said starving is a really bad way to go. So kids do not just starve themselves, right? They they will eat, <laughs> even if they may not want it. If they're hungry enough, they will eat. So uh, that kind of took the pressure off me as a parent. So. Hopefully some good stuff in there for you. That's just my opinion, and this has been A Bear in the Woods. Okay, let's get into the meat of this. Here's a disclaimer, though, to start us off. There are many different ways to show that Jesus was divine, okay, that Jesus is not just a mortal man as the Da Vinci Code said, you know? There are many ways to do that. So if you are familiar with the Bible, you may be thinking along the way, why doesn't he use this example? Oh my goodness, he's missing all these great you know, reasons that Jesus is God, but it is likely on purpose that I'm leaving them out for right now. Uh, the divinity of Jesus is a massive topic, and so certain verses will be key points in future episodes, especially when I talk about other religions and how they view Jesus. So there's there's so many, and I don't need all of them to make my point today. And so, you know, hang with me if you feel like, oh man, he's this guy's lost it. He's just he's missing out on some of the best ones. All right, now the entire New Testament was written in the first century. So this idea that the Council of Nicaea met in the fourth century 
and to you know that they and they voted and they decided to make Jesus a god instead of just a man you know again the da Vinci code is just fiction so it it's okay he you know he's a fiction author and so he doesn't mean for it to be thought of as true he's writing fiction but a lot of people read that book and then just went off the deep end um so just from a basic standpoint, the New Testament was written hundreds of years before the Council of Nicaea even met. In fact, the council, their purpose was to investigate what the Bible said about Jesus and then come to a conclusion. So here's our first little uh, question. Did the early church believe Jesus was God? Now, I mentioned at the close of last uh, last week's episode that Doubting Thomas confessed my Lord and my God. You know, he said that to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now, as a Jew, Thomas said the Shema every morning. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And the reason I'm calling it the Shema, because in Hebrew, this little phrase begins with Shema. It's a, it's a I guess it means here. <laughs> uh, I don't read Hebrew, but that's why it's called that. Anyway, here, here it is. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. So as a Jew, his whole life, he's, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then for some reason, he decides to start calling Jesus my Lord and my God. And in the Bible, when someone mistakenly worships another man or an angel, they are quickly corrected and told to worship God alone. So why doesn't Jesus correct Thomas when he says this? Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul takes this Shema and he expands it. And so experts in the original language, are they are the ones who, that's how I figured out that, that Paul was doing this. Okay, this is not my own invention. But experts in the original language see what Paul is doing because they see the ties that he's making. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul takes this Shema, and Paul was a devout Jew. He was a Pharisee, a, a, you know, a religious elite for the Jews. And so he knows the, the Shema, of course. But he takes the Shema and then expands it. He sort of opens it up and puts Jesus in there. And so we have in this in this in this First uh, Corinthians eight passage, we have God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a little confused with this, that is okay. Hang with me. You know, with okay, well, is is God God or is Jesus God? You know, that's okay. It's okay to be a little confused right now. My main point is to show that Paul does not consider Jesus to be a great moral teacher. He's much more than that. Now, one of the major ways God is differentiated from everything else is by this great divide between creator and creation. Romans 1 condemns those who worship the creature rather than the creator. So basically, it's okay to worship the creator, but not a creature. No, no created thing should be worshiped as God is worshiped. And, but Jesus is said to be the creator of all things. These are the first few verses in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, the word is Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, it's very clear there. Jesus is the creator of all things. 
In Colossians 1, it says it this way, speaking of Jesus, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." Whew. So Paul is being, you know, he's he's ba- basically trying to be as clear as possible. Jesus is the creator of what? All things. Another way of, you know, dividing God from everything else is that he is the savior. In the Old Testament, God tells the nation of Israel he is their savior. He says in Isaiah 43, 11, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. Yet Paul and Peter in the New Testament apply this language to Jesus. So in Titus 2.13, Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So both of them have this phrase, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Greek grammar, which is the Greek is what this was originally written in, there is a, a big-time grammar rule called the Granville-Sharp rule. And essentially what that grammar rule states is that the way the Greek is written here, there is no way to separate these. So they are both God and Savior are referring to Jesus Christ. You can't get you know fancy and try to figure out a way out of it. it they, this is what they are saying. Jesus is both God and Savior. So I've given you some clear examples of Jesus referred to as the creator, Lord, God, Savior. Uh, But critics may say, well, that's what other people were saying about Jesus. That's what other New Testament authors, but Jesus himself never claimed to be God. So that's the second question that I've had to sort of investigate that I'm sharing today. So here it is. Did Jesus himself claim to be God? Jesus never said, this is true. Jesus never says, I am God, worship me, right? But Jesus claims to be God in various ways. He Basically, he walks the walk instead of just talking the talk. One of the most popular ways Jesus calls himself God is by applying the I am statement to himself. In one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, God tells Moses to go to Egypt and lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery. And Moses asks God, who should I tell the people sent me? And God answers, I am who I am. And, and God said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, you know, this is sort of, this may sound kind of strange, this, why would God say I am? It just, it just reads really weird, right? But there are many important reasons God calls himself I am. Notice God, by saying I am, he is, he is present. He, there is no, uh, there's no time in which he was created. He's always there. This implies eternality. Uh, There was, you know, again, never a time he was created. He is the creator of all things. Also, by saying I am, he requires nothing to exist. He he alone is self-sufficient. He's not dependent on anything. So we require the world that God created for us, oxygen in the air to survive, those types of things. But God says, I am, I am self-sufficient. And in the very next verse, God reveals his name as Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh and Jehovah are just different renderings of the same Hebrew word. Um, And this this word Yahweh is related to the verb to be. 
So remember your being verbs from elementary school. Am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been. All right. I hope you maybe you remember that little that little uh, deal. But those are called being verbs. And so I am, and this this word Yahweh is linked to to be. So uh, God is you know that there Yahweh and I am are linked together in the Jewish mind. All right. Now in our here's a little side note in our English Bibles. When you see LORD in all caps, but and sometimes the O-R-D is like a slightly smaller font, but it's still capital letters. When you see LORD in all caps, that is, in Hebrew, that is Yahweh, okay? Now, and, and here's the takeaway. Only the true God, the one true God, is called Yahweh or Jehovah. And, and, so, and he told Moses, I am. All right. Now in John 8, the Jewish leaders are questioning Jesus about some of the claims he is making about himself. And as devout Jews, they are proud of their heritage and coming from the line of Abraham. And so Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, this is a bold claim in Jesus, uh, what Jesus is saying here. And the Jews said to him, now we know that now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? That's what the Jewish leaders are asking him. And Jesus says, you know, God, the father is the one who glorifies me. I'm not glorifying myself. It's God who glorifies me. And then Jesus says this, your father, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. So that, you know, you don't get stoned to death for claiming to be a good moral teacher. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying there. These are the Jewish leaders. They're very familiar with the Old Testament. They knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus also says things like this, you know, just ask yourself, would a good moral teacher make these kind of statements? In John 17, 5, Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Is that how you open up your prayer? <laughs> no way. You know, that, that is a bold prayer to make, to tell God to glorify you with the, with the glory you had before the world existed. Here's another one. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He, a few verses later, he says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And, and the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they know ex exactly what Jesus was claiming here. Another one, Jesus often healed on the Sabbath, and the Jews considered this to be work, and, and the Jewish leaders thought Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. In John 5, 17 and 18, Jesus answers them. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And what's going here on with the Sabbath deal is when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, 
the reason this enraged the Jews is because in, in Jewish thought, God was the one, and of course I believe this too, God is the one who is holding the world together. So yes, in Genesis it says God rested on the seventh day, but it's not like God is uh, just asleep at the wheel and just letting the world do whatever. He's always in control. He's always working. Uh, he is the one who sustains uh, our universe. And, and so that's the way Jews were thinking. And so when Jesus says, my father's working on the Sabbath, so I can work on the Sabbath. You know, it, he, he's put, Jesus is putting himself in a whole different category. And the Jewish leaders picked up on that. Now, critics will also say, so I mentioned earlier how they say, well, you know, Jesus himself didn't really claim to be God. Now I've shown you where he does, but all of these are from John's gospel. And critics, will they'll say, well, John's gospel was the latest written and it's not reliable. These are just sort of legends. Jesus actually didn't say this stuff. And so they, they won't, uh, a lot of times they won't allow you to use John's gospel for your arguments. Uh, and so the thought, the common thought is that Mark's gospel is the earliest of the four. And then that, you know, that Matthew and Luke sort of used Mark as one of their sources. So that's, that's kind of the common thought in scholarship. So let's go to Mark. My favorite Bible story is in Mark 2. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, I always loved this one. Uh, so Mark 2, here's, this, here's the basic story. Jesus is teaching that he's in a house and it's very crowded. And there's a paralyzed man who has some friends and they want, they're want they trying to get the paralyzed man to Jesus so he can heal him. And so Jesus is teaching and they can't get in because of the crowds. And so they climb up on the roof and start like tearing a hole in the roof. Evidently it was made of you know leaves or straw or I don't know, who knows. But they, they tear a hole in the roof and lower their friend down you know, in front of Jesus. So imagine being there, seeing this paralyzed man being lowered down by his friends. And Jesus looks at him and, and you would expect Jesus to heal him, right? But Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that's a weird thing, right? I mean, obviously he's there to be healed. What is Jesus talking about here? So he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then, and then we're told in Mark 2, 7, that the, the Jewish leaders who were there, they're asking themselves, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. For who can forgive sins but God alone? They pick up on that. Nobody can just forgive sins except God. And, and so Jesus says this. He, he's, um, the Bible tells us he sort of knows what they're thinking. And so he says this. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, get up and walk? You know, basically, I mean, any I could walk around and say, your sins are forgiven, but there may not be anything, or <laughs> if I'm just saying it, there's, there's no uh, power behind that, okay? But when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, you know, that's easy to say, but let me show you, let me give you some proof that what I'm saying is true. And then he says to the paralyzed man, rise, get up and walk, and, and heals the man. And so, you know, Jesus uses this situation to show that he is not just claiming to be a good moral teacher or somebody who, who even just heals. He is claiming to be God, for only God can forgive sins. We've talked a little bit about this already, but in, in, uh, later in Mark 2, Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And so again, Jesus is, is by... Um, in the, in the Jewish leader's mind, he's breaking the Sabbath constantly. He's always healing on the Sabbath, that sort of thing. And Jesus says, no, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm, I'm over the Sabbath. I have authority over the Sabbath day. 
In Mark 4, Jesus calms a storm and the disciples ask themselves, you know, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Uh, It is only the creator who can control creation. And so, you know, yeah, there are other times in the Bible, like you may think about Moses parting the Red Sea and stuff like that. But it's clear in those passages that Moses is is uh, working through the power of God. God's the one who commands them to do this. Whereas Jesus just gets up, speaks to the, the storm and, you know, says, peace, be still. So Jesus is, is claiming on his own authority that, that he is over the wind and the sea. In Mark 14, Jesus changes the symbolic meaning of the Passover meal and applies it to himself. Now, the Passover meal was uh, a, a commemoration, it was a commandment by God to remember their freedom from Egyptian slavery. So God said, do the, you know, celebrate the Passover each year in this way. Yet Jesus felt he had the authority to change some of the symbols to make them about himself. Again, Jesus is claiming to be God. Later in Mark 14, Jesus was arrested and stood on trial before the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. And they asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus makes a reference to a somewhat mysterious divine figure that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel's an Old Testament book. This divine figure reigns with God, is given an everlasting kingdom, and is worshipped in a way that only God should be worshipped. So again, not, Jesus is not just claiming to be a mortal man. And the high priest, you know, so when Jesus said this, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So Jesus claimed to be God in several ways. He did not say, I am God, worship me. And and so sometimes critics will say, you know, Jesus never says that. And like they demand him to say that literally. But he did. But Jesus did things only God can do. And he said things only God can say. So when and then also when people worship him, he accepted their worship, which a good Jew should know is a horrible sin. You you do not accept worship as God unless you are God. C.S. Lewis, you know, when talking about did Jesus claim to be God, he in the book Mere Christianity, which is the inspiration for this podcast, C.S. Lewis has this um, this very popular quote. Here it is. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. I just love that quote because really Jesus spoke very difficult words and that's why he lost some of his followers because they they were okay with him being a great you know, moral teacher and even a healer. But when he claimed to be God, that's a big deal. And so and Jesus did many things which sort of force our, our decision. The last question I want to cover is, in what sense is Jesus God? So one way of determining what the earliest Christians believed about Jesus is to go back as far as we can 
uh, from a historical document standpoint. And this may start to sound familiar to the resurrection episodes that I just did. And guess what? We are going to look at another early church creed or, or hymn that's given to us in one of Paul's letters. Philippians is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, which is well accepted as being originally written by Paul. It's one of the undisputed letters of Paul. So even critical scholars will accept Philippians as being written by Paul. Over the last few weeks, I referenced an early church creed in 1 Corinthians 15, which is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, let me read a, another uh, creed or hymn. And when I say hymn, I'm talking about H-Y-M-N, as in singing a hymn. Uh, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, this is known as the Carmen Christi, which means Christ hymn. And so as I read this, think about the question, in what sense is Jesus God? All right, here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is what Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And here's where the creed begins. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, notice what it says about Jesus. Jesus was in the form of God, but took the form of a servant being born a man. So this perfectly agrees with the first few verses of the Gospel of John, where it says there in, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This, you know, and then in the creed, Jesus was in the form of God. Now in John 1.14, it says the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And let's go back to the creed. Jesus took the form of a servant being born a man. So here we have the earliest, you know, one of the earliest church creeds that we can know about. And the Gospel of John, which again, critics say was written too late to, you know, contain, you know, reliable information, that sort of thing. But they perfectly agree with one another in what they're teaching us about Jesus. Now, the key phrase in this hymn or creed, the one that's most debated is this, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, some will interpret this grasped word uh, you know, as Jesus did not count equality with God as something to that he could even possibly have, right? So Jesus is below God on the hierarchy, and he sort of looks up and he's like, yeah, that, that's impossible. I'll never be like God, um, and that sort of thing. Another way, another way of translating this is Jesus did not count equality with God something to be held onto, and both translations are, are okay. They're proper uses of that Greek word. It can be used in different ways, much like you know a lot of words in, in the English language. So which idea was Paul trying to convey? And in order to know this, you have to look at the context of what Paul is trying to, to argue. What, what, is, what is he trying to teach the people in this letter to Philippi? And so let's go to a few verses right before the Carmen Christi, right before this hymn. Paul says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on with the creed. So Paul is basically encouraging the church in Philippi that even though you're all human beings and you all have you know, certain rights, Paul is saying, instead of, instead of jumping to your, your own personal rights, consider others more important than yourself. Put others before yourself, even though technically you're equal. That's what Paul is encouraging the church to do. And, and this is so true, even for us today. Here's a, a, a tiny little sermon. You know, in your family, if everybody's constantly worried about their individual rights, that's going to be sort of a toxic environment in the family. It's when a husband and a wife put the other spouse ahead of them. When they start thinking about the other one first, then that is what creates, and if both of them are doing that, that's what creates a very good marriage, a very good family. You know, I mean, this, this concept applies to business and, I mean, just all of life, right? And so that's what Paul is encouraging the church to do. Put others before yourself, although you, you can claim equal status, all right, as, as human beings. So it doesn't make sense for Paul to use this example of Jesus if Jesus is not on an equal status with God. You know, Paul is trying to encourage people to humble themselves, and so it, it makes perfect sense if you say, okay, Jesus is equal with God in status, in, in rights, but Jesus humbles himself and becomes obedient to the Father, Okay, that's that's what Paul is is trying to convey here. So, you know, let, so think about this. Jesus humbles himself and then it says the Father gives him a name that is above every name that every knee should bow. And this is a reference to Isaiah 45:23 where every knee shall bow to Yahweh. So again, Jesus is compared to Yahweh. And notice the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. They are equal in nature, yet the Son humbles himself so and then, but the Father raises this Jesus and gives him a name above every name, and Jesus accepts this praise to what? How does the creed finish? To the glory of God the Father. Do you see how the praise and glory bounces back and forth between the Father and the Son? They give glory to one another in different ways. And so I hope you are thinking, okay, Barry, you've shown me that the early Christians believed Jesus was God, but there is also there's God the Father. And Jesus is is different than the Father. And so, you know, what's going on here? Because it also says there's only one true God. You know, what's going on here? You are correct. The Father and the Son are different persons. And so we've got to start talking about the Trinity. So come back next week. Here's our closing verse. Jesus tells his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of That name word there is singular. That is one singular name. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you have one name, but three persons mentioned that seemingly all share this name. One name, but three persons. Be ready to use your mind next week.